the New England Unsettler is an audio journal of minor sabotage. Fringe theory. Deep ecology. Radical. Radical. Radical politics. The unusual. And the underground. Hyperreality. It's produced by Panopticon artists. For a freer. Post-structuralist. Thoroughly decentralized world. Good night, actually, Unsettlers. This is Elias. Coming to you from what I'll generously refer to as my home studio. It's been about a week and a half since the last communique from the Unsettler, but we are back in action. Communique 012, Communique 12. Main studio over at Somerville Community Media was closed for Memorial Day. Uh, But in that time, I managed to do an interview with my friend and friend of the show, Dr. Christopher Petrella. Um, I'm very excited, very proud to bring you this interview, which concerns the carceral state in the so-called United States of America, as well as the prison industrial complex generally, and uh, a discussion about the different facilities that may benefit from the current administration, perversely enough. Without further ado, Dr. Christopher Petrella is a lecturer in American Cultural Studies at Bates College in Lewiston, Maine, where he also serves as Associate Director of Programs for the Office of Equity and Diversity, the OED, and he is a contributor to Boston Review and Black Perspectives, African American Intellectual Historical Society. He's finishing a book on the history of white supremacy in 20th century New England. I will certainly be petitioning for an advanced copy of that. His work has been featured in the New York Times, Harper's Magazine, The Nation, Boston Review, and The New Yorker, has appeared on ESPN and NPR, and has been debated in the U.S. House of Representatives. And for some reason, he is now discussing that work on the New England Unsettler. So, uh, please enjoy this interview with Dr. Christopher Petrella. So uh, around the time that I was initially going to interview, an Onion article came out. Did you see convicts sentenced to generating 80000 to 100000 in profits for private prison? I did. That, yeah. It was pretty spot on as far as what I could tell. Yeah. Uh, it's, not, it's not inaccurate. I mean, I would say it's a little hyperbolic uh, in some of the sort of denominations that they use, but I think the general thrust of prisoners being profit-generating subjects is not far from incorrect. Yeah. And so they actually, they name drop CoreCivic, uh, formerly known as Corrections right. Corporation of America, um, which is a real right. company. And uh, from what I know, it's still the largest of the three private prison operators, the other two being Management and Training Corporation and the, the GEO Group. Um, and, uh, That's correct. In, yeah. in, in, right. in prior interviews of yours, I've seen that uh, you, you've discussed that many private prison companies are publicly traded. And as of 2013, CoreCivics and GeoGroup had a, a de facto duopoly with around 75% uh, of the private correction f- uh, facility market cornered. That's correct. And if, and if you include MTC in that, um, in that index, uh, the, their collective market share becomes closer to 90% of the entire, quote, private prison uh, marketplace. Wow. Wow. So we'll jump right into it. So so we've talked a little bit about some of the things that I had, I had brought up as sort of uh, entrance, an, an entrance into or an introduction into the conversation. But how did you begin studying the private prison industry and how has the landscape shifted since then? Yeah, that's a great, I mean, that's, that's a great sort of uh, introductory question in a lot of ways because when it really comes down to it, um, questions of social justice for those of us in this area are often very much pinned to our own autobiographies, right, whether we choose to admit it or not. Um, and so I can begin by saying that uh, I grew up in a town with more prisons than stoplights. Wow. Um, in, in north central Connecticut, um, we had three, three prisons growing up, which included the maximum security facility. Um, which housed death row. Uh, Connecticut has since eliminated capital punishment, uh, but that maximum security facility is indeed still in the town um, in which I was raised. And there was, to be honest with you, 
a deafening silence around questions of carcerality, criminality, um, imprisonment, race, class, um, uh, and social deservedness in my uh, in my community, which of course was ironic because these three facilities were a few miles away um, from my house. Um, so I began to ask um, around 15 or 16 years of age some probably not so convenient questions um, about why prisons, uh, where prisons, how prisons, right? What's their, what are their origins in the U.S. nation state? What's their circuitry? Um, how do they move through time and space? Um, what is their sort of normative purpose in the social imagination? Um, and in many ways, how are they used to create and sustain um, uh, racial, among other, um, ideologies? So the, the short of it is that in the year 2000, when I was about 16, I was interested in the uh, U.S. census results for my hometown. So I went online. I, I found um, I found a, a copy of the census and uh, discovered, much to my sort of amazement, that close to 15% of my town's population was what the sentence was what the U.S. census would classify as. Uh, quote, black slash African-American. And this was a, a, a flummoxing uh, realization for me because my high school was, uh, was racially homogenous, that is to say, almost completely white, mm -hmm. right? So I couldn't understand from my perspective as a 16-year-old why, you know, over 10% of the population in my hometown was black according to the census, yet I didn't see any black people in my day-to-day -day interaction. Right. And so with the help of a, of a I would say, a progressive um, educator um, at my high school, I uh, discovered that for the purposes of census counting, prisoners are um, routinely counted in the census tract in which the prison is located as opposed to the census tract from which they came, right? And this has cascading consequences in a whole lot of ways. Uh, in a lot of ways, what it does then is it artificially inflates the sort of legislative power, the capacity to receive sort of block grants from the state uh, and various sort of uh, budgetary apportionments in these small, oftentimes, often white rural communities and artificially deflates all of those social facets um, in uh, center cities slash uh, predominantly uh, areas where com communities of color um, are abundant. So that was a major realization. That was a revelation in a lot of ways. And I began to, to ask and wonder how my own sort of whiteness and how my, my family's whiteness um, was complicit in this larger sort of carceral machine, machinery. Right, because quite frankly, we couldn't have afforded to move to that town had it not been for the various subsidies that the prisons uh, received. Um, so we were already implicated in the belly of the beast. And at the time, I was just coming to understand what that looked like and was really um, hungry for some language, right, for some critical language to describe what I was seeing. So it wasn't until you know, it wasn't until a couple of years later that I discovered that the practice I just described um, is known in the field as prison gerrymandering um, and in a lot of ways sort of distorts the democratic process vis-a-vis -vis some of those facets I mentioned, budgetary apportionment, uh, legislative representation, uh, et cetera. So that's a little long-winded, but I, I, I hope that's, um, that sort of sets the stage for um, my entryway into the study of not only the private prison industry, but just carcerality more generally. Yeah, I oh, know, certainly. Um, so my experience as far as seeing the results or the sort of trickle-down effect from, you know, state and federal funding uh, has been that, you know, certain, certain grants or um, – certain funds are earmarked for certain things. And it sounds like that that wasn't the case here. It wasn't necessarily that the 
the prison, the folks that were counted among the population of your town that were imprisoned at the time of the census, it wasn't that more resources were being allocated toward uh, state or federal run facilities. It was that the town uh, was receiving more federal funding based on population size, generally speaking, right? That's, that is that is absolutely correct. Okay. Just wanted to clarify that for myself. Um, so in the time, you know, that you've been doing this research, that you've been, you know, studying um, the prison industry and, or, or the, the, the carceral state, I guess, generally, and then the private prison industry more specifically, how has the landscape shifted and, and what effect, if any, has the work that you and your colleagues have and peers uh, have done as far as researching and speaking out about um, prisons generally and the private prison industry specifically. How has that had an effect on the industry and the political environment um, that currently seems to sort of foster the expansion of the private prison industry? Right. That's a great question. Well, I, I can't um, quite hazard a guess on um, how exactly my work specifically has been taken up and to what degree it's, it is, it has helped um, to move the, the ball forward vis-a-vis uh, -vis, um, reducing our reliance on prisons generally and private prisons more specifically. Um, but I can't offer some sort of general higher altitude observations on the changing landscape um, of the, the private prison industry. Um, what I can say on the most fundamental level is that the we've reached a point over the last few years where the very nomenclature of prison privatization or private prisons or for-profit prison facilities um, has become um, decidedly ubiquitous. So when I first started working on some of these issues um, in the mid-2000s, roughly a decade ago, I would regularly run into people and describe what I did, and they would be shocked um, to know that such a thing as a private prison existed, right? Or in a, that is to say sort of an extortionist model of containment existed, particularly that the so-called private prisons were owned and operated by publicly traded companies, and they could buy shares of these firms um, uh, on the on the stock exchange, right? Mm, yeah. Um, that that's changed in a lot of ways. Um, I would say, anecdotally speaking, um, more folk in broader social circles have at least sort of an elementary, but still very helpful understanding of the basic um, outlines um, of private prisons. Uh, and I think I think at the end of the day, intuitively understand the perverse incentives um, that private prisons offer citizens, which is to say, if our collective goal, in my view, as it should be, is the overall reduction of our prison population with um, an eye toward ultimately eliminating the the, the prison model. Uh, then it seems perverse that a company's bottom line would be contingent upon the very opposite, right? Which is to say, steadily increasing roles of prisoners, um, more draconian sentencing policies, longer sentences themselves, um, et cetera. Um, so I, I would say up front, more people know what private prisons are and have an analysis of um, their their shortcomings. Um, secondly, I think the field more specifically is speaking in more sophisticated terms about the private prison landscape. And what I mean by that is fewer and fewer critical scholars, I think, are comfortable with the language of mass incarceration, uh, which was a, a unit of analysis, unit of analysis to describe the sort of distinctive uh, expansion of imprisonment in this country from the mid '70s, really through the late '90s um, and early to uh, in early 2000s. Um, but 
it seems to me that the the term itself, mass incarceration, um, was deficient in a couple of ways. And sort of scholars in the field, practitioners practitioners in the field, have begun to realize that, which I think is why many folks um, in these sort of scholarly and practitioner roles are moving beyond that nomenclature and thinking of questions of containment and punishment in terms of the language of carcerality and criminalization, which are much more broad. Mm -hmm. Um, They're descriptive of practices as opposed to um, a site, right, which would be sort of mass incarceration, mass imprisonment um, affixed to an actual prison. Uh, And I think sort of moving that analysis in a lot of ways, or I think adjusting that nomenclature speaks to a different analysis, which is to say there are many ways that bodies are criminalized um, that don't always land someone in prison or jail, but are no less deleterious, right? right? So that is to say one carceral policy could be housing policy, right? I mean, you think of sort of redlining and you think of restrictive covenants. I personally, and I think some other sort of critical and radical scholars would argue that redlining is a form of carcerality. Right. Redlining in a lot of ways uh, creates the architecture of an open air prison in a city. Gotcha. Right. Yeah. So um, where where police officers are readily able to patrol, surveil, etc. cetera, uh, what would someone like um, would someone like uh, Dylan Rodriguez, a critical prison scholar, would call um, would call captive uh, populations. Right. So. There are different ways of thinking about some of these problems, but I I think I've been very happy to see the field sort of jettisoning the language of mass incarceration and supplanting it with something a little more sophisticated, a little more capacious uh, vis-a-vis the the carceral state or carcerality. The one last thing I'll say is that um, I'm a strong advocate of ensuring that in any of our analytic devices, applied to questions of imprisonment or punishment, we recognize the role of the state, which is to say, I think the carceral state uh, is a particularly important and powerful unit of analysis. Because when we start to think about prison privatization, oftentimes we conceptualize privatization as sort of free market fundamentalism, right? Sort of capitalism run amok. And I think that's a misread of what private prisons are, right? They're they're not entirely private. Um, Most of the funding for private prisons, in fact, or what are thought to be private prisons comes from people like you and me and citizens and denizens. Um, And so my argument for quite some time uh, has been this. Um, Private prisons expand and enhance the sanctioning capacity of the state. But it's still the state at the end of the day that in many ways is sort of dictating the changes and contours of sentencing policy, of prosecutorial prosecutorial discretion, um, et cetera. So I always want to make sure that the language of the state in the carceral state um, doesn't drop out from the analysis. And, and, I, and I think we're getting to a place now where more folks are, are recognizing that. Um, and so I'm, you know, I'm happy that uh, the field is 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 moving forward um, in that way. Uh, finally, I would say, um, I, I would say that in the era of um, the 45th president um, of the United States, many of these issues have been brought to the policy fore, um, and. I think there's an increased vigilance among citizens, denizens, the electorate um, to um, refuse to turn a blind eye to many of these to many of these practices, because people are beginning to draw linkages between carceral policy and immigration policy. Right. Where 10 years ago, despite the fact that very draconian immigration policies had already been passed. Uh, Most specifically, I have in mind Operation Streamline, which criminalized border crossings beginning in 2005. Many people weren't aware of that. I think we're beginning to become more aware of that as a citizenry um, 
as a as a social collective. And so um, generally, I think uh, more people have the sort of literacies to to think through whether or not we want private prisons uh, in this country and whether or not it's a model that deserves um, sustenance. Sure, sure. And uh, Operation Streamline, uh, just to sort of give some background about that, you said it was started in 2005. That was uh, the operation that encouraged a zero-tolerance approach to unauthorized border crossing uh, by engaging in criminal prosecution specifically of those engaging in it, right? That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. So immigration itself became a status quo. Right. I was just going to say, and that sort of allowed the budget for the Border Patrol to expand uh, pretty exponentially, as well as as well as ICE's budget. That's correct. That's absolutely correct. And what it also did was, you know, in part in part in the language, because I think this is despicable in a lot of ways, but it also created a new market for companies like Core Civic, formerly Corrections Corporation of America, um, and the Geo Group, right? Sure. Because whereas you know, whereas only ten to you know, 10 to 11 uh, percent of long-term secure and confined adult prison facilities are currently privatized, um, owned and operated by these companies, closer to 62, 63 percent of immigrant detention facilities are privatized, right? So these companies see immigrant detention um, as, a, as a growth market, as a growth industry, and are really making very deep and problematic incursions um, into that sector. So you're, you're absolutely right. Um, Operation Streamline provided a much heftier budget um, to the Department of Homeland Security uh, and to ICE. And what interested me when I read about Operation Streamline was also that there was a, a bed mandate or bed quota that was instituted, which essentially uh, sort of forced uh, – or required at least U.S. immigration and customs enforcement to keep an average of 34,000 detainees per day in its custody. Uh, no other law enforcement agency, at least according to what I've read, is subject to that kind of statutory quota on the number of individuals that it needs to uh, arrest or hold. And it, it basically forces ICE to come from a place of, of – not being able to delineate, they're, they're not able to exercise any kind of discretion um, about who poses no risk to public safety or who may pose a risk to public safety. And so there's this sort of indiscriminate detention that is encouraged by the law. And that really struck me as, as scary, but also worth noting in that, you know, ICE is maybe seen as, um, you know, a, a an organize or not an organization, but a, a branch of the government that should uh, um, receive special attention or a special kind of um, uh, anger should be the target of a special kind of resentment, as are these private uh, corporations. And really, you know, from what you're saying and talking about the carceral state, these are sort of the all the heads of this this hydra in a way. Yeah, I think, well, I, I think you're absolutely right. And, and I would just say to expound on, on one of your um, observations, the, the statutory quota, which is um, a stated capacity of 34-ish thousand um, beds that, that ICE needs to maintain on any given day, of course, provides a very problematic incentive for det detention and incarceration mm -hmm. um, and even capture, quite frankly. Um, but I would say there are other quotas sort of extant in the larger prison, um, structure, um, not necessarily statutory quotas, but contractual quotas. So I'm, I'm sure you're already, you know, well aware of this, but for, for your listeners, um, it's not unusual for, for-profit prison companies like Core Civic and the Geo Group to embed in their contracts certain provisions um, which require, uh, require states with whom states or municipalities with whom they're contracting to um, maintain a minimum occupancy in their facilities. And if states or municipalities cannot do that, then states or municipalities have to pay these for-profit prison companies as if they did, right? So 
that's also problematic in a whole lot of ways because it creates an incentive structure that in no way promotes the overall reduction of our prison population. So let's say I'm core civic and you are the director um, of um, the, uh, the, the, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, the CDCR, right? I come to you and say, I'm going to give you this, this great deal on prisons. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to build you a new prison. Uh, we'll have it operational in, in two years and we will, you know, we, we will offer a per diem rate of, you know, $1 per prisoner less than you otherwise would pay if you just um, existed as a public entity. But here's the catch. You need to maintain a 95% occupancy rate, right? For every bed that you fall below, every person rather, that you fall below 95% occupancy, you need to pay us as if uh, that bed were filled, right? Now, can you imagine if you were the director of the CDCR going to, to private citizens, going in front of the state legislature and um, disclosing the fact, right, that you were under capacity and therefore, as a consequence, had to shell out more money to these private prison companies, right? Of course not, right? That would make people so upset, right, right. to know that, um, to know that these quotas weren't being met. So, of course, what do states do based on the incentive structure presented? They fill the beds. Um, and it's no, it's no major secret. I mean, sort of in, in my field, you know, the sort of well-worn refrain is if you build it, you will fill it, right? If you build it, you will fill it. Mm -hmm. um, beds that are not occupied present a major political problem, right? Because the electorate begins to ask, well, then why do we have this prison in the first place? So I just wanted to, um, to piggyback off your previous um, observation about statutory quotas with respect to Operation Streamline, Streamline to think about contractual quotas vis-a-vis um, -vis minimum occupancy requirements that are um, baked into contracts um, uh, written by corporations like Core Civic and the Geo Group. Yeah. No, I mean, to be honest, that's not something that I, I remember coming across in my research. And I, I wonder partially, you know, you've said that maybe the language surrounding private prisons or the idea that private prisons exist has become uh, more ubiquitous. Uh, people understand that these exist. Do you think that that awareness has bred a level of acceptance and sort of as a follow up to that? You know, are there people that argue that many elements of the prison system or prison industrial complex are already privatized? You know, the healthcare, probation, parole, electronic monitoring, um, and, and this is something that I learned through a, through an interview with Marie uh, Gottschalk at um, right. uh, at U of uh, University of Pennsylvania and author of uh, Caught: The Prison State and Lockdown of American Politics. Um, is the is the proliferation of private facilities and inevitability, is it something that you think people are starting to accept? No, I, I don't think there are, quite frankly, I, I don't think there are any political uh, inevitabilities um, across the sort of social, uh, across the sort of social spectrum. I think that's probably my sort of Marxian historical materialist framework speaking for me there. Mm. Um, I, I very much believe that, uh, that that we make our own history, though uh, not under conditions of our own choosing, um, or um, to state that, to, to rephrase that in the words of, uh, of, of uh, queer uh, feminist theorist Judy Butler, um, agency always operates in a scene of constraint, right? So I don't know that the electorate or the, the, the social or the body politic is becoming sort of inured to the existence of, of private prisons, but, um, but actually rather um, more deeply politicized to their problematic nature. Um, I think to your previous question um, about the, the sort of um, privatization of various services in public prisons, um, you know, there's a place where, where I think we could use a little bit more political education. Um, because my, my argument, quite frankly, and this is not always particularly popular, 
um, is that the the private public distinction for sort of heuristic purposes is very useful, but 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 when but when private prisons and public prisons exist out in the world, um, the distinctions between them in a lot of ways um, break down, right? Um, because if you look at if you look at public prisons, let's just take the state of California, for instance, you know, many public prisons were built in the 90s and, and 2000s um, that were um, that were essentially um, financed by lease revenue bonding, which created bonds uh, against the will of the electorate um, that were bundled by by financial services companies like Bank of America, like J.P. Morgan, uh, like Goldman Sachs, right? So even when public prisons are built, there's still corporations that are so-called public prisons are built. There's still corporations that are raking in significant profit. Um, And so I I do think that's important because I wouldn't want people to begin to fetishize the problematics associated with for-profit prisons, prison companies like CoreCivic and GeoGroup without scrutinizing the role or the contours and even, quite frankly, the history uh, of public prisons in the United States. Sure. So to paraphrase, would you say that in, in a way it does matter who is imprisoning large swaths of the American public, but to get hung up on what is privatized versus what is under state control. Uh, you don't want to see that as a distraction. Correct. And I think it just depends on one's orientation, right? I mean, my, my orientation to, you know, the sort of seemingly intractable nature of, of carcerality in, in the United States is that we must reduce as quickly as possible uh, our overall prison population um, to the ultimate end of of prison abolition, um, and so with that orientation, I'm not particularly interested in arguing um, on the finer points of privatization, but rather thinking about, as I mentioned earlier, how how private how prison privatization is used to enhance the disciplinary power of the state. I think if we begin with that assumption, then we are left with um, perhaps um, perhaps conclusions that are underrepresented in sort in mainstream uh, journalism. Okay. Okay. Now, does that make sense? I can I can rephrase that if you want. It makes sense to me. Um, yeah. I mean, I I guess I'm 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 with you there. I think it's interesting because I am sort of likening this in my head to some conversations that happen between different parts of the radical left um, and right. where, where people kind of come to um, – where arguments come to a head over over things that I'm not, I'm not sure it, it makes sense to, to be worrying about those particular issues, although I understand why people are you know specifically concerned – um, about the implications of how or why something is happening, uh, if that, I mean, that's sort of vague. Let me put it this way, to, to sort of provide this argument in some context, right? So last summer, right, when the Department of Justice, of course, this is before the, the election um, in November, but last summer when the Department of Justice um, uh, floated a, a policy directive uh, aimed at um, Paring down the Department of the Federal Bureau of Prisons in the Department of Justice, Justice's use of private prisons, right? I mean, the internet erupted, right? I mean, the internet erupted um, and, 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 and celebrated, right? Celebrated this policy directive. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was just a bit more skeptical, right? Because the, the paring down of private prisons in no way indicated that we were also going to be reducing the number of human bodies that were incarcerated. Right, right. So if, if it's just a scheme of relocating some prisoners to a public prison, 
then you know I'm not sure that we're actually making substantial ground um, if we're oriented toward an abolitionist perspective. That's not to say that the policy directive wasn't significant and important. It was, but but I I did not um, want the conversation to sort of take unhelpful detours. Um, right. Right. Because at the end of the day, the prison, the U.S. prison population can only be reduced by thinking about the entire lattice work of what I like to call the criminal processing pipeline, right, which really begins with sort of life conditions and access to public services and relates to policing and interrogation and investigation and, you know, pretrial and detention and trial, conviction, sentencing, incarceration, um, and then release. So unless we're looking at all of those um, sort of social fields and social practices and and policy intersections um, as a totality, then the question about whether or not uh, prison privatization is a good or a bad um, social policy, I think is is of limited efficacy. Does that make sense? Definitely, definitely. And it, it, I think it speaks to sort of the problem that uh, progressives, leftists, and whatnot are having sort of in the, in the age of the internet and the age of Facebook news. You know, you categorize something very quickly. You categorize news as um, something that's a victory or defeat for uh, your particular political ideology. And there's, there's not really any... Um, any opportunity to dig a little bit deeper there, um, you know, if, if you want to have that sort of bite-sized news clip and, and feel and react one way or another to it, because um, there's just so much, so much information. You're right. No, you're absolutely right. And I, and I think that the question is, how significantly are private prisons functionally different from or than public prisons, sure. right? And, and until we can, until we're willing to confront that question on a very deep policy um, level, um, then I think we're we're actually just collectively unprepared to sort of make pronouncements, um, good or bad, um, about um, you know about the future of, of of private prisons. So, and I and I say this as someone who, of course, is no fan of the industry whatsoever. Sure. Yeah, I you know, the other thing I think to consider, the other thing that that makes me think of is the fact that even if you do celebrate as a victory because for some reason you have decided that the state holding someone captive is at as at at the root maybe more justifiable or more understandable than a private corporation holding that person captive and you sort of ignore the bank rolling of federal and state facilities um, by corporations or the sort of outsourcing of different quote unquote services within those prisons to different corporations. Right. All of that can change with, uh, with an election. So the Washington post had reported, for example, a few months ago that the geo group and core civic donated $250,000 to support uh, Trump's inauguration festivities, and that separately the GEO group had given uh, a little over that amount, 275000 to the pro-Trump super PAC, Rebuilding America Now, according to uh, FEC filings. Um, right. And one of those $100,000 donations came a day after the Justice Department announced that it would no longer use the facilities. So this was under the previous administration, the Obama administration, uh, announced that there would, you know, be less reliance, as you said, on private facilities. And this big donation came from the private prison industry, and it's being investigated. It has been investigated as, you know, potentially illegal by the campaign legal center. But regardless, um, you know, the the Geo Group, regardless of whether or not it violated the federal ban on political contributions. You know, Trump is elected, and I think we have to look at the fact that this was in the better interest of the private prison industry because they have since potentially gained a foothold again. So even if this was seen as a victory during the Obama administration with the election of Trump, you know, things were easily kind of, you know, or the process was begun of molding things back 
into the shape that they were um, when the private prison industry had more of a hold uh, on the Justice Department. Right. I mean, you, uh, you, you're, you're right, of course. And even a cursory glance um, at the fluctuations, and I would say the upward fluctuations or, or growth um, in uh, cost of shares uh, of core civic would evince your, your, your claim. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. on October 24th, 2016, uh, core civic stock was selling for $13 a pop. Right. Um, you think about af- right after the election that jumped to about $20. Right. Right after the inauguration that jumped to $29. Oh, right. Wow. In mid-February, $35. Right. And now we're sitting at about $33. So, you know, investors uh, are highly attuned to um, the, the, the way the political winds are are blowing. And know that the administration of the 45th president uh, of the United States, of course, is very sympathetic um, both to uh, highly sort of restrictive law and order policies, which the president is using uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions to implement, um, and and also to, to the private sector um, and to the quote-unquote um, free market. So, this is really sort of a perfect storm for those of us that are deeply concerned um, about the proliferation of for-profit prison companies. Mm-hmm. And if I understand right, even during the Obama administration, um, when the Justice Department announced that it wouldn't use private facilities anymore, it, it only really affected a few prisons um, and didn't apply to ICE or the U.S. Marshal Service detainees um, who are technically in the federal system but not under the purview of the Federal Bureau of Prisons. So it was limited in terms of of what it did, and we've seen since Trump's election the expansion, um, you know, of immigration, um, uh, you know, a crackdown on immigration, ICE raids, you know, kind of these sweeps – the the quote unquote Muslim ban 1.0 and 2.0. I mean, can can you draw any sort of historical connections for us between basically the idea of, of registering Muslims of 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 criminalizing migrants um, along religious and ethnic lines uh, to detainment and internment? I mean, there's a history of this. Obviously, in the U.S., you've written about it um, for Boston Review. Um, you know, do you have anything that you can say on, on the sort of move towards these specified, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Specified, uh, criteria for, for holding people for going after folks. Yeah. So that was sort of a two part question. So I'll begin actually with the Obama era policy directive, um, in, in hopes of sort of strengthening um, the the correct claim you made. Thank you. Um, so so Sally Yates's um, directive outlining the, um, the 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 drawdown or drawback or reduction um, of contracts given to private prisons on the federal level was finely finely tailored. So it, it only affected thirteen. Bureau of Prison Facilities, owned or operated by some of the companies we've already mentioned, which at the time of the directive held slightly over 20,000 individuals and and accounted for 11 to 12 percent of the the Bureau of Prisons' total prisoner population. Mm. Um, And and as you said, it excluded um, state and local jurisdictions and other federal agencies as well, um, like ICE, uh, and also the U.S. Marshal Service, which plays a significant role in prison privatization, but often goes unremarked upon. So really what the memo did was call for a prospective relocation of about 20,000 prisoners, which is about one, equal to 1% of the entire prison population, from, public, from private facilities to public facilities over the next several years as the contract expires, mm. right? So it was very, very limited. Um, in its scope, and I do think that's important um, to underscore when thinking about prison privatization um, yeah, through an entire historical sort of sweep um, and uh, context. To your second point about 
um, national origin, racial, ethnic uh, restriction-based restrictions on immigration throughout U.S. history. But it, sadly, the examples and instances are replete. Um, but I, I think I sort of want to begin this line of thinking um, with a quote, and I'm going to paraphrase, uh, from theorist David Theo Goldberg. He, he wrote this very helpful book in, in my view, in the early 2000s called The Racial State, in which he more or less argues that um, that racial rule uh, or the ability to govern through race is always a struggle between subjection and what he says is citizenship, because modern states are involved in the reproduction of national identity as well as population in and through the articulation of race. So that is to say, there is no state, there is no modern state that exists uh, in a way that does not produce and is produced by questions of race, right? And there are a whole host of examples throughout our nation's history. I mean, the one that comes to mind immediately is the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, um, which many white folk, particularly on the West Coast, thought would help to reduce the likelihood of wage depression um, by restricting Chinese laborers. Um, but it was a, it was a blanket um, policy, uh, a blanket act piece of legislation that, that affected um, a very, very um, uh, uh, finely tailored um, uh, group of folk, aka the Chinese. Right. The Immigration of 19, the Immigration Act of 1924 um, was equally uh, as restrictive. Um, it, it, it restricted almost entirely um, people of Asian um, descent uh, and also restricted almost entirely um, uh, immigrants from southern Europe, um, which were at the time considered not particularly white. Um, so. You know, the Immigration Act of 24 um, proposed limiting dangerous immigrants like Italians, Arabs, um, Asians, um, European uh, Jews, um, other sort of dysgenic um, populations uh, like not fully white social inadequates, mm. right, that I just described. So this is very much a part of our history um, that I think needs to be um, brought into the historical narrative when we think about um, the provisioning of Muslim Ban 1 and, and Muslim Ban 2. Uh, and, and Muslim Ban, of course, is the correct nomenclature to use. Um, you know, though, though advocates of the policy will tell, you, uh, will tell you otherwise, right? Make no mistake about it. This is certainly um, a Muslim ban. Um, right. And right. I mean, and, and there, there's historical precedent for this sort of wordsmithing um, in a lot of ways, because the Immigration of 1920, the Immigration Act of 1924, right, what it did more specifically, right, was was limit, um, it basically established ceilings on the maximum number of immigrants allowed from any given country um, to 2% per year of the number of immigrants from any given country as recorded in the 1890 U.S. Census. Now, the 1890 U.S. Census was really, really important because, of course, it reflected a higher percentage of desirable northern European immigrants than any of the three subsequent censuses, right? The census of 1900, 1910, and 1920 included many more um, undesirable immigrants in the eyes of Anglo-Saxon Protestants, okay. right? White Anglo-Saxon Protestants who represented the majority of the U.S. population in 1890, right? So that's really important to note because the Immigration Act of eight, of 1924 was not entitled "Let's keep European stock and Asians out of the country," right? right. It was "Let's simply reduce." the number of immigrants allowed to 2% uh, per year based on the 1890 census. And that was a very ingenious way of creating racial restrictions without naming them. 
Yeah, I mean, the the Muslim bans have been decidedly clumsy compared to that, which is interesting because the language that was used by Trump on the campaign trail has been brought up and kind of reconsidered under a legislative, a legislative lens, which is part of what has caused right. the overturning of these travel bans. Um, you know, right. That's, exact, that's exactly right. So, um, you know, in the interest of time, I was wondering if you just had anything that you wanted to speak about as, as what you saw as, an, as important to pass along, um, you know, to the average person that may see these stories go by on, you know, Huffington Post or, you know, uh, The Guardian or, or something. Um, or, to, or to plug your book, tell us, maybe give us a sneak peek um, at what you're working on, etc. Yeah, I, um, I'm always happy to talk about my, my book. Um, but in the interest of not keeping you for another three hours, um, I uh, I will pass on that until the next conversation. But I will say um, I'm very excited about the text. Uh, it's a it's a book that addresses um, the dimensions and origins of um, white supremacy generally, but also the KKK um, in 20th century New England, which is a story I believe uh, has been. Um, greatly undertold. Um, and as someone who was raised in the Northeast, um, was raised in New England, if we want to use that terminology, um, I, I was always sort of uh, taught that, um, particularly in, in sort of this, this sort of colorblind era of liberalism, uh, that the South, right, was racially backward, right? The South uh, the U.S. South was white supremacist. And right. we in the Northeast, of course, didn't have any sort of racial problems or racial tension. Not at all. Um, which is right, which is, of course, um, part of the pedagogy, the social pedagogy that being socialized as white in that time and in that space entails. And so in a lot of ways, this text is a way, presents a way to sort of push back against uh, against the sort of white racial smugness um, of New England generally um, uh, through um, a sort of resurfacing or exhumation um, of um, white supremacy's machinations uh, in 20th century New England. So I'm very excited about that. Uh, I, I do want to say one last thing about for-profit prisons that I think may potentially be helpful Please. Um, to listeners, because um, this is a, an under-considered um, component uh, of, of, of prison privatization. I know you and I have talked about this before uh, over email, uh, and, and I'm pretty sure in person over the last few years. But I think it's important for people to know that companies like CoreCivic and the GEO Group are not classified for the purposes of IRS designation as traditional corporations, right? Like a Target or a McDonald's or Boeing or IBM, for example. They have a very different corporate classification uh, for the sake of taxation with the IRS. And that classification is called a real estate investment trust or a REIT, an R-E-I-T, real estate investment trust. And real estate investment trusts um, save a whole lot of money uh, in terms of federal taxes, if you qualify for a real estate investment trust as a company, it reduces your corporate tax liability to next to nothing. Uh, and in exchange, what you need to do is you need to distribute 90% of what you would have owed in taxes to your shareholders. So, of course, it redistributes wealth in a particularly problematic way um, by taking away from the commons and privatizing the redistribution of those funds. Um, but I think from an ideological or philosophical perspective, the fact that co both Core Civic and the GEO Group are interested in, in achieving this status actually tells us a lot about what they think of what they do, right? So in a lot of ways, I think Core Civic and the GEO Group at their heart are real estate companies, right? They're real estate companies who dabble in incarceration. They use incarceration as a way to achieve a real estate status. 
And for anyone who's interested in the relationship between property, race, incarceration, slavery, to be to put it more pointedly, right? Their corporate classification as a real estate company who holds property uh, is particularly odious. And I think that's something people need to consider, right? right. Because when, when this news first broke, um, very few outlets, and particularly very few mainstream outlets, considered it to be of the utmost importance because tax policy, of course, isn't sexy. I mean, it's, it's not fun for a whole lot of people. Um, but I think the Core Civic and Geo Group status as REITs, as real estate investment trusts, tells us a lot about what they think about their business model. Um, and I think that recognition is one that should give all of us deep, deep pause, um, particularly if we're concerned about um, expanding the we um, uh, of our democracy in the making. Yeah, I think I think that's uh, that's pretty huge. I, uh, we have talked about that uh, briefly uh, in the past. Um, it's it's disturbing as well to think about the fact that you know somebody is buying stock in this company receiving dividends they're popularizing and sort of uh spreading out the uh responsibility or uh the involvement to their shareholders essentially all the all these shareholders have part take part in the incarceration of the people that make up the population of their facilities. Yeah, it's it's definitely disturbing. That's right. And of course, you know, um the the governing boards for these corporations statutorily have one charge, which is to increase shareholder value, right? So, um that alone provides an incentive it creates an incentive structure that again, um I think um, the body politic should scrutinize very, very carefully. Hmm. Well, Chris, thank you for bringing that up. Um, as a final point, uh, I will set up a blog post for this episode with some links to some of your work, uh, some of the articles that I've referenced in here, either directly or indirectly, uh, in my line of questioning. And if there's anything else that you want to add or any other resources that you want to share with us, uh, feel free to send them along uh, and I can link to them. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Petrella, for being on the New England Unsettler. I really appreciate you uh, giving us some of your time here. Thanks so much for, for having me on board today. I, uh, I really appreciated the opportunity. And it's always, you know, I have to say it's always um really inspiring to be able to talk to someone as thoughtful um, and as um, as informed politically um, as you. So I, I very much enjoyed the conversation and hope we can uh, hope we can continue it uh, very shortly. Oh, thank you, sir. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to have you on again. And uh, if you ever want to, you know, just signal boost something or, uh, you know, especially when you have uh, when you have the book coming out, uh, feel free to come on and, and chat about it. I'd love that. Will do. Would love to. That was our interview with Dr. Christopher Petrella, writer, scholar, educator. He's a busy man. Thanks again, Chris, for coming on. We appreciate it. That's it for Communique 012, number 12, from the New England Unsettler. We'll be back next week with a live show at 5 p.m. Eastern Time every Monday, currently. Only on bostonfreeradio.com. Subsequently archived. You can find that on iTunes. You can find it at theunsettler.org. Email us if you have questions, concerns, corrections, anything like that at theunsettler at riseup.net. Always welcome any feedback. Feel free to leave a review and a rating on iTunes. Helps bump us up in stats if people are looking for radical news the Susan of comedy maybe they'd be into the unsettler I don't know, tell your friends as always pleasure uh, creating this communique for you comrades and uh, stay free